Hi there, this is Justina, and you are listening to the Exploding Head Podcast. Hi everyone, this is Justina, and welcome to the Exploding Head Podcast. This week, the end of April 2021, Human Rights Watch, a human rights organization, quite known one, quite prestigious, released a report on the Israeli policies in the occupied Palestinian territories, pointing out, documenting what these policies are exactly, and calling them for the first time, for the first time that Human Rights Watch is using this language, apartheid. This is definitely not the first time that anyone is saying that the Israeli policies in the occupied territories and Israel itself really constitute what could be called a system of apartheid, but this is the first time when Human Rights Watch said that. And the report is very detailed, categorizing these policies into several areas. So just to remind you, I've already released three episodes on Palestine. One was on the seeming controversy that surrounds this conflict. The second one was on hypocrisy that sometimes you might find when you go into deeper debates on this topic. And the third one was on media silence. That is, what is being said, how it's being said, and very importantly, what is not being said in the media, in the mainstream media, when Palestine is being talked about. So this fourth episode allows me to do three things. One, to quickly present to you the definition, the legal definition of apartheid, what it means, and why Human Rights Watch deemed Israel to be engaged in exactly that. So one, what apartheid is. Two, a summary of policies that Human Rights Watch actually talks about in their report, something that I myself didn't mention in my previous episodes, because yes, I've talked about a lot, but there are some things that I actually didn't mention. Makes sense, never presented my episodes to be exhaustive. Or exhausting hopefully either. And the last point will be a couple of broader questions for Israel, questions we can ask about the Israeli policy in Israel itself and the occupied territory, something that stems some important questions to ask that stem from this report and from just what's happening in Israel and the possibility of the International Criminal Court to now investigate what Israel has been doing once again, in the occupied territories, especially in the Gaza Strip. So the landmark decision, the decision that the International Criminal Court actually does have jurisdiction over the occupied territories, that was what sparked my episodes and my desire to talk about Palestine in general. But that was a big deal. So I will come back to that at the very end of my episode when I talk about those broader questions. So what this episode does is tries to further answer the question of what do we talk about when we talk about Palestine? So stick with me. Thank you so much for being here and let's begin. In the report, Human Rights Watch referred to two legal documents that define the crime of apartheid. So one document is the International Convention of the Suppression and Punishment of the Crime of Apartheid. It's a UN convention of 1973 simply called the Apartheid Convention, easier to say, yes. The second document that they refer to is the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Interestingly, that is the document or the statute that establishes actually the International Criminal Court, and it was adopted in 1998. So this is where I reveal to you that, no, I am not a legal scholar, but these are quick descriptions of what these documents are, and hey, a UN convention, and one of the major documents 
of the International Criminal Court. So could that be seen as a big deal? Sounds like it. Before I proceed to give you a quick description of how these documents define what the crime of apartheid is, what it constitutes, it's important to say that this report doesn't call Israel an apartheid state because that in itself, this concept, apparently is not defined in international law. So talking about language and how specific we have to be with legal language especially, if someone's arguing about the legality and about the very language, uh, I thought it was important to know, because I didn't know that myself, that this concept, if you're using it as a concept, apartheid state, obviously it exists linguistically, because here we are talking about it, but it doesn't have uh, on itself apparently a legal definition. Yeah, what we can talk about is whether certain policies of certain countries actually constitute the crime of apartheid. And apartheid is not an elusive term, it has its definition, and I myself am a big fan of, yes, using appropriate political science, social science, whatever scientific descriptions, when they fit what we're describing. And especially when you think about when we talk about something as grave, really, as apartheid. So we don't want to be throwing accusations, but what we can do, what we're allowed to do, is to use the language of the science, of, in this case, political science, once again, social sciences. So, for example, when I was talking about Jordan in my previous, previous episode, it's correct to say that the power is consolidated in Jordan, right? For example, which branch of the government, which body has more power? And how much power that body has, we can talk about power consolidation. So, this is not a judgment, so when you think about it, it's a language that describes something without using language that implies judgment, even though do I have my own opinions about certain things? Of course I do. So apartheid is not an opinion. It has its definition, and some policies can fit that definition. So let's see what the definition is, and then, my second part, what are those policies that actually fit that? So what both of these documents talk about is establishing and maintaining, actually, domination of one racial group over another. And you do that by systematically oppressing them. So it's systematic, it's institutionalized, right? So it's, so it's not like a bunch of individuals doing something to another bunch of individuals. No, it comes from the system, from the regime. So it's an institutionalized regime, as the Rome Statute says, of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. So the report puts everything together and identifies what three primary elements of the crime of apartheid are. So one, an intent to maintain a system of domination. Once again, one racial group over another. Two, so it's systematic oppression by one group over another. And the last one is one or more inhumane acts carried out on a systematic basis to pursue those policies. A system of domination, systemic oppression, inhumane acts to maintain it. What are inhumane acts? Both documents say that that could be forcible transfer, expropriation of landed property, creation of separate reserves and ghettos, and last but not least, definitely, the denial of the right to leave and to return to their country, and the right to a nationality. So the keywords here, 
something that's institutionalized, systematic oppression, domination, and there's also that discriminatory intent. So there's that intention there. It doesn't happen just because there's an intention to maintain that system of domination top-down because, hey, systematic, inhumane acts. So once again, apartheid is not an opinion. It has its definition. And although, thankfully, thankfully, we don't have that many countries that would fit that definition. Obviously, we think of South Africa only. So it is a big deal to say, oh, actually, there is another country that's doing that. And we should be talking about it. Apartheid was not a unique situation. Colonialism, settler colonialism, ethnic cleansing, right? Pushing people from the areas where they used to live and then treating the people who left not that nicely. That is not new in history. We've had the systems before and unfortunately we still have them. And if we want to keep a certain regime, the efforts have to be systematic. That's not shocking. But so apartheid, this is the definition, some examples of what inhumane acts are, that's it really. This is what legal documents say. And if you personally disagree with that, you disagree with these documents. You don't disagree with me. These are the legal definitions. And of course, we always have our right to say, well, I might not agree with something, even though it's legal. We can go into deeper debates, legality versus morality. Is the legal system functioning well? And so on. But that's a different debate, and I will not go into that today. Now, the report. In addition to what I have been talking about in my previous episodes, and I've talked about child detention, forced evictions, East Jerusalem and the West Bank, military raids within the West Bank. I've talked about the checkpoints. I've mentioned the West Bank barrier and the checkpoints within the West Bank. So we have restriction of movement. I've mentioned how the West Bank is divided into areas A, B and C. We're only in areas A and B. The Palestinian Authority has some authority, very limited, but like there is some, while Area C is very much under Israeli control, really, even though the whole West Bank is under the Israeli control, hence a military occupation, of course. So what I'd like to add today are a couple of things that were mentioned in the report that I myself didn't mention. A disclaimer, I'm not going to summarize the whole report to you. There is, in fact, a summary, because the report itself is quite long, about like 200 pages, but the executive summary is long enough. Um, so if you're interested, obviously, I will link that, of course, of course, of course, in the description of my episode and the article that goes with this episode as well. So what we have are land confiscations. Land that is privately owned by Palestinians would get confiscated by Israel, claiming that this is land of the state. So it kind of doesn't matter what documents you have. If Israeli authorities want to confiscate that land, they can. Also in the area C of the West Bank, that's the one that's controlled by Israel. We can say that. So it's very difficult to get permits to build anything. Interestingly, I have learned that when I was doing my master's research in Palestine itself. And this is when I've learned that oh, okay, so if we want to build a structure that's considered like a more significant structure, like a well, for example, if you want to drill a well, you need a permit for that. So any structure that's bigger, I guess, and imagine than a house, you have to apply for a permit. So even if you live there, if you have been living there somewhere in Area C, or obviously if you were one of the 750,000 Palestinians who had to leave their homes when Israel was established in 1948, 
if you didn't happen to be an internally displaced person living in the REC, you might not get a permit for a project you want to build. And imagine if you have built something, if you don't have that permit, what might happen to that structure. One other thing I was talking in my episodes already are house demolitions, well, in East Jerusalem, and also demolitions of Bedouin, for example, Bedouin villages in the area C of the West Bank. So these are basic structures where Bedouin communities happen to live in area C. What the Israeli government can do is send bulldozers to really demolish that. It's a very frequent occurrence. The report itself says how it's in the hundreds really per year of how many or how frequently Bedouin villages get demolished. How real is this? Well, you should ask the people whose houses have been demolished, really, for them it's real. For us, it's theory, it's news. Interesting, exciting, maybe, in in a weird way, right? Also, I happen to have seen it myself. I've visited a very newly demolished Bedouin village in the area C, so, so for some reason, if you wonder if that actually happens, it does, it does happen. And I remember from my own visit, it was really iconic in a way to see in that demolished village also solar panels that were also destroyed or at least partly destroyed so we can see that oh some aid agency has provided the bedroom village with solar panels and yet it kind of doesn't matter because it was demolished in the end so here's a an interesting thought about aid money well it's a big debate obviously but a very quick example so Area C, how easy is to get a permit? Uh, the report says that authorities approved less than 1.5% of applications by Palestinians to build something there. So not a great rate. So not only it's very difficult to build something there, but also if you do have something built, that might get demolished. That's a very basic summary. The report also says how in the Negev, the, like the desert region, between 2013 and 2019, the Israeli authorities demolished more than 10,000 Bedouin homes. So these are Bedouins living in Israel, so where they used to live before 1948. So how they're seen, are they seen as citizens? Are they sort of allowed to stay in the Negev, in the, in the desert there? The answer is no. It's clear that the answer is no. And again, I encourage you to read parts of the report at least, the summary, maybe the whole report, who knows, if you have more time. And obviously, Human Rights Watch is not the only organization that has been documenting what's in the report. In my article, I have added more links to different organizations that talk about various legal aspects of the military occupation and what's happening in Israel and Palestine, a couple of human rights organizations and their reports. So obviously, it's not just this one report that talks about everything, although it is a very detailed report indeed. And now the last part of my podcast, it's definitely not the least in terms of how important it is to talk about it. And exactly what that is, is uh, a couple of questions we have to ask. So one, to come back to the International Criminal Court and to ask then, since it now has the jurisdiction over the occupied territories, if Israel is saying that the court is biased, that the court will not do its work well, even though the International Criminal Court, it's not a political body, it's a judicial body. But anyways, so if the ICC cannot or should not be investigating Israel, who can? Any report comes out that says, oh, human rights violations, 
Israel would say that's biased. It would probably take it even further and say that's anti-Semitic. You've heard that before, I bet. So a question for any country and any regime. So is it then just you, only you can investigate your own crimes, and I will add, with objectivity somehow? Like there's no one else. Everyone's biased. Everyone's against you. Unless I'm thinking there was some organization where the only member is the U.S. And then like you would allow the U.S. to investigate you. What is that body in the whole international community? We have a lot of organizations. Maybe not that many judicial bodies. I'm actually not sure. But we have a lot of them. And then the second question. Is there any organization? Like any human rights organization? International national whose reporting you would consider objective because obviously there are human rights organizations within israel i will link to one of them one of the major ones with tell them in my article but so is there then any organization that you would also not accuse of being biased and anti-semitic like that's a pretty straightforward question so what this report showed or documented is uh, i will say it's not shocking well it depends on on your knowledge of the region, once again, with that report, without a report, with the word apartheid being used, with that word not being used, the reality on the ground for the Palestinians living in the West Bank, in Israel, and in the Gaza Strip, nothing changes. All these elements that the report describes, yeah, that's not news to Palestinians. The one thing that could change, probably very, very, very painfully slowly, is if that report is being taken seriously by actors who have the power, who can exert power onto Israel. So we have different governments, different international organizations, different uh, trade blocs, right? And we have different grassroots movements as well. So what do we talk about when we talk about Palestine? Well, we talk about many things, and it seems that these things fall legally, using the legal definition under the umbrella of apartheid. That's not new to say, but it's also important to say. That's why, again, we have definitions not to be afraid to use them when we see that that fits. I really hope that you are not afraid to use those definitions, to use those concepts as well, that you are not afraid to name things as they are, because without that, how can we expect any change? politically, personally, when you think about it, right? Without naming things as they are. So thank you for your time. This was a long episode. And I'll see you next week.